First, though, we're taking a look at what's happening on the ever-changing landscape of restaurants and food services in B.C. And what changes that we've seen coming into play during the pandemic, what changes might stick around for a much longer time? First, though, take a listen to this short comment. This is one of the owners of Raga Restaurant, which is a restaurant on West Broadway. It's been there for a long time, a very well-known Indian restaurant, but they are sadly shutting the doors. Uh, that is in our mind, but not at this time, because right now this is not a good time to, you know, to start anything. So in future, we will keep our mind open. So there's a possibility? There is a possibility maybe you do a smaller scale or maybe for takeaway or something. You know, we are not completely giving up yet. All right. So that was one of the owners, Raj Sharma, speaking with Global News. Uh, the uh, question he was asked there, would you open up somewhere else? Maybe something smaller, something that focuses more on takeout, not ruling it out, but saying, as for now, uh, so many things, the pandemic, the construction on Broadway, Broadway, that particular restaurant, there was a flood that shut it down for quite some time a few months ago. So the kind of, well, not perfect storm, but a storm that has led to those doors closing. What else is changing? on the restaurant front. Well, let's bring in Ian Tostenson, the CEO of the BC Restaurant and Food Services Association. Thanks so much for being here again. Hey, Joel, a pleasure. How are you doing? Very well. How about you? Good, thanks. Uh, that's got to be sad to hear, though, no matter what, for whatever reasons, to hear about a restaurant owner shutting the doors. Yeah, it was at what, 25, 30 years, 20 years mm-hmm. of all that hard work. And up until probably two and a half years ago, it was doing quite, quite well. But, you know, it's, a, it's the epitome, right? You know, there's the construction, you know, the pandemic, the flood. I mean, he's had everything. But the nice thing he said, though, is I may open again in a smaller venue and, uh, and do takeout. And I, I think he's actually speaking to some of the forward trends that we see that will happen in the industry as we continue through our journey here. Right. Even if it's not uh, that uh, combination of things, he also talked, it wasn't in that short clip there, but he also talked about the fact the building that that restaurant is in has been sold. And he's concerned as well about the lease and the cost of being in that area might go up. So even if you're not forced to, to kind of shut the doors in a scenario like that, do you think we're going to see more restaurants and such going more to smaller spaces and focusing more on takeout? Yeah, so if you look at it, so I'm just sort of thinking the things that have changed since the, pa- the pandemic. So we currently sit now with six people at a table and no socializing, which is different than before. Uh, we've used plexiglass in a lot of cases to, to increase the capacity of the restaurant. Otherwise, we have spatial capacities between tables, and that would, you know, would cut down on capacity, which is six feet. So we've used plexiglass. Uh, we're wearing masks. And then we saw before the pandemic, probably 12 to 15 percent of our sales were takeout. And now we're seeing that that's probably 30 to 40 percent on a pretty consistent basis. And and so that's where we're at today. Uh, Patios were just sort of patios. Now patios have become meccas because that happened because Dr. Henry said we should be outside. And at a time when we were closed back in 2020, you know, we had takeout and then we opened patios and then every municipality in B.C. sort of followed suit. So if you look at, uh, for example, um, Lonsdale in, I hate driving it because you can't get anywhere. But it's, the good news is it's because all these little restaurant patios now have, are occupying parking spaces. And we've created an outdoor ambience for small restaurants to be able to expand their offerings outside. 
So patios have become a good thing. So I think that we've, you know, we certainly have seen um, a lot of changes. We've been so fortunate that we haven't really had to close compared to a lot of other industries and certainly uh, the restaurant industry in North America. But I think, Jill, going forward, we're going to see, to your point now, uh, smaller footprints, more agile footprints. That would be a restaurant doing a robust takeout and delivery business. There will be the in-store dining. And then um, there will be patios. And the business owner can sort of operate all three of those things. And, you know, if we get closed because of something in indoor, we've got outdoor, we've got takeout. So that's, that's a big change from where we were at. And we've done such a great job, the industry, in terms of being very innovative around takeout and delivery, especially around, uh, you know, some of the um, uh, curated alcohol offerings and wine offerings. People are loving that. So, um, and then, of course, the advent of our delivery services with Uber and Skip and DoorDash, they've uh, expanded because of this, too. That's not going away. And... People, though, I mean, it's going to be us that go to restaurants and the future of what our expectations are going to be. We will probably get to a point of no masks uh, eventually. Uh, I think that was mentioned in, a, in the Bank for Sun today is, at, you know, at, at the Irish Heather, we're in hospitality. Um, I don't see that for the next little bit. Um, we'll get rid of the vaccination passports in time. Again, not tomorrow, but, you know, I think we're talking months down the road here. But people always want to be feeling for a long time safe. They want to, we will have to put safety, cleanliness as number one for all restaurants. We're going to probably have to keep some distance so people feel we're not crowding them in. And we'll continue on with that simplicity that we put into restaurants, which is, as you see, a lot of restaurants don't use menus or using QR codes. They've minimalized a lot of things in tables. The public's going to expect the fact that we are going to continue to 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 have high standards in terms of safety and quality, so that they feel safe and enjoy enjoy their time there. Uh, the QR codes, I can't imagine that going away. Just to be, I mean, there's still the option in a lot of places of having a physical menu if you want one, but it's so convenient and handy for people. You talk to you know restaurants, and then especially restaurants that have multi units, and the cost of printing you know, colorful menus and stuff versus a QR code. It makes so much sense from an environmental point of view. So, yeah, that's not going away. When you talk about takeout as well, do you see a scenario where if we see restaurants having these smaller footprints or maybe they just have very small kind of almost kiosk outlets with patios, do you see a scenario where if there's such a focus on takeout, Everything doesn't need to be made then in a separate kitchen attached to that restaurant, doesn't it? Could we not have, say, a warehouse where it might look like nothing from the outside, but inside a whole bunch of restaurants could all have kitchens and that's kind of like a takeout hub. So even if you're feeling like Earl's or Cactus Club or or White Spot, you're ordering takeout, but it might not come from a physical dine-in restaurant. It might come from more of this central place. Absolutely. So you've seen two two ways. Uh, Restaurants that have not been... Um, you know, that we, that had idle kitchen time, developed other brands and did deliveries. So if you were a pizza place, you might have developed a hamburger recipe and sold it online and delivered it. But what we're talking about here is, and this is another part of the future, are ghost kitchens. And those ghost kitchens could be in a warehouse. Now, there's a it's actually happening in Vancouver right now where there's a, a commissary. And we've got uh, three or four brands that will be starting soon in Vancouver. They'll be produced by the commissary under license, 
and distributed under license. And so the restaurant doesn't have to invest anything. They get a, they get a, uh, a commission. But you can actually expand because they also have places all throughout North America. So if we had Jill's Burgers on Kingsway, and you are so thinking you want to expand, you could expand your physical distribution through this company. They would cook your burger and distribute it in, you know, in their uh, places throughout the lower mainland. Or you could launch it in Toronto, or you could launch it in Los Angeles, or in, uh, in Florida. So you're seeing now uh, the really interesting abilities for people that, that believe they've got the real deal here to be able to expand their brands of very little capital investment and, uh, and you know, probably making, you know, 7 or 8% as a, as a commission, which is great. So that's, you'll see more of that coming in the next couple of years. It sounds so fancy, ghost kitchens and being or, able to order whatever, whatever brand you're feeling like. Uh, what about the service part of the industry? What do you see changing there? Because certainly there has been a lot of change already. Uh, people, some people leaving the industry, others joining it, calls for, for changes to hours and uh, compensation. What do you see happening there on a permanent basis? Compensation moved up. Uh, because of the pandemic. Um, so, and, you know, I think mentally now as an industry, we've got to prepare ourselves to become an employer of choice because we're competing in a diminished labor pool. We don't have enough people. You know, I've talked about that. We are going to require sooner than later uh, skilled uh, foreign labor to fill a lot of jobs, not just in BC, but Canada. I don't think we're going to quite see uh, there's a robot that's rolling around in Richmond that does some very mechanical duties, which is kind of cute, actually. They deliver things. They pick up dishes at the table. Um, you'll see the, the point is you'll see more technology around that to, to streamline kitchens so you don't have as much labor, uh, maybe on some of the service side. Uh, we'll be talking about QR codes. And, you know, our reliance on labor, um, I mean, labor and that whole experience, the hospitality is so important, but we're going to have to find ways around. It might be ordering at the table through an app so you don't have to, you know, as much labor time with your, your server there. Maybe your server, you know, brings food and develops a relationship that way. But there'll be a lot of efficiencies that have to be built in because, you know, we're probably 30 to 40, well, we're 30 to 40,000 people short in the industry. So we're going to have to use technology to get us through that. All right. And uh, Ian, just before I let you go, it is uh, for in Vancouver right now, Dine Out is continuing. How's mm-hmm. it going given all the restrictions and how people are feeling right now? So, yes, yeah, yeah, so, so interesting. Uh, when Dr. Henry said we're closing gyms, they sort of people went, uh, I guess we shouldn't go to restaurants. And then she said we're opening gyms. People go, oh, we're going back out to restaurants. It's amazing. She'll be on this afternoon. Uh, so we've got dining events going on in, uh, in the Okanagan, in Victoria and Vancouver. And uh, here's what we're hearing is that the restaurants are just having the time of their lives. People are going out. We're struggling a little bit in downtown Vancouver just because of the whole office situation and tourism. But um, people are embracing it. And I think the message that Omicron is sort of fading and sort of not as, you know, um, Elton John's sick, but it looks like he's going to get better pretty fast. <laughs> That's good. Um, that people are getting the confidence about coming back. And I think we're going to be back uh, as we get towards the spring. I think we'll see more normal. So we're starting to see it. We're, we're feeling good about it. we got a long way to go. It's still a lot of pain behind the scenes, but who cares? We just appreciate people coming out and supporting us. And, and there's some great re- uh, restaurants to visit in Vancouver right now. All right. Sounds good. Ian, we'll leave it there. Thanks again, as always, for joining us.
Okay, Jill, talk soon. Well, it has been a while since we've really been talking about the flooding and the recovery that's taking place in the Fraser Valley, parts of the Sumas Prairie, where, as you know, there was huge damage to farms and a lot of lost livestock. On Friday, Agriculture Minister Lana Popham joined the Jazz Joe Hall Show to talk about that recovery. Take a listen to just part of what she had to say about compensation and what about homeowners and property owners in that area can expect. There is still a lot of work, a tremendous amount of work to deal with in the Fraser Valley and up uh, past Hope where landslides and flooding really affected communities. So um, it is still a, a really serious issue, of course. Um, we have dealt with the most um, extreme situations and um, we are now in a, quite a state of, of cleanup still. And that, um, that includes, at this point, doing a lot of assessments, especially on soil, that will be uh, hopefully uh, able to grow crops for this uh, spring or late spring. The, the animals, the mortalities there, they have, they have been removed from the Fraser Valley, and um, the barns have been cleaned out. Some barns will need to be rebuilt. All of this is going to take, uh, obviously, a lot of support from both the provincial government and the federal government. And I can tell you that I'm very hopeful that a, uh, an announcement is very imminent on what that, that aid will be. I'm pleased uh, with where we've landed. All right, that was Lana Popham speaking on Friday. Joining us now is Ian Payton, the MLA for Delta South, also the opposition critic for agriculture and food. Thank you so much for being with us. Thanks. Good afternoon, Joe. Uh, I know you've also been meeting with some of the farmers and homeowners in the Fraser Valley. What are you hearing from people at this point? Well, Jill, I'm hearing a, a lot of frustration. I mean, this, this flooding took place almost two and a half months ago. This is unacceptable that two and a half months ago, uh, the dikes broke, the Nooksack River uh, overflowed up into Canada. You know, there was no warning whatsoever from uh, the province that, that these things would have happened. Actually, the people in Washington State actually got some warning that the flooding was going to take place. There's a lot of livestock could have been uh, loaded up and moved to higher ground and whatnot. So there's a lot of negligence on the province for not at least having some sort of a warning system in place for this massive atmospheric river that took place and caused so much damage. And, I mean, I'm talking to grown men in tears that uh, have no idea how to even get back into their houses, much less get their barns back up and running from all the damage from sitting in seven feet of water for three weeks. And are there concerns as far as the timeline? I know uh, Lana Poppin was asked about the money and the the kind of cost sharing of the $5 billion of federal money and saying that she's hoping that there will be an announcement by the end of this month, so within the next six days, on that money and the applications. But are there concerns as well on how much time it's taking to actually get that money out the door? Well, absolutely. You know, like I say, the flooding took place almost two and a half months ago. So now if you're a, a farmer that needs to get his barns rebuilt, equipment repaired, get back into his house, and a lot of these houses, as you know, restoration companies will come in, but they may say, look, I need a you know $200,000 up front to get your house back into order so it is livable again, or, or work on your barns to get barns fixed up and back in order to get livestock in. So you know, they just can't keep waiting and put that money out of their own pocket. They need this agri-recovery money up front. And we've heard all sorts of horror stories by, 
even this emergency BC, uh, management BC funding that farmers have applied for and suddenly have realized there's always a, a catch to everything. They, they're not allowed to be a corporation or a limited company, and they can't have gross sales of, of uh, over a million dollars a year. So, I mean, if you're a dairy farmer or whatever, that certainly takes you out of the running for that compensation. So if you're in that scenario or you've applied for that then and you, you find out you don't or you're, you're more than $1 million in annual sales, what are they telling them? Just, sorry, you don't qualify? Well, you know, these aren't my words. I'm getting, you know, email after email, and there's so much of this is being uh, on social media now. It's on global TV. It's on all the different television stations. These are headline news now of farmers that are finally speaking up and saying, look, we, we, we can't wait any longer. We have to know where the federal government, the provincial government is with this agri-recovery compensation money so that people can start getting their their buildings and, and their livestock and their equipment and things back to order. And specifically from blueberry growers, I know that you were talking to many of the blueberry growers and and for those crops, and we've talked about this on the program before as well, it's not a sense of waiting for those plants to come back. In many cases, it sounds like they need to have everything replaced. Yeah, absolutely, Jill. Now, British Columbia is one of the premier blueberry uh you know, jurisdictions in North America, for that matter, we have tremendous blueberry plants. I was out there yesterday with uh, fellow MLAs, Mike DeYoung and Bruce Banman. We met with uh, 25 or so uh, blueberry growers, and it is devastating. Literally thousands of acres of blueberries in Sumas Prairie that have sat in water for two to three weeks. And what that's done is basically without oxygen, it has killed off the plants to the point where they're never going to see buds again this coming spring. And to remove all of those plants and start over again could be a 10-year process before they get them back up to the volume of blueberry production that they're normally used to. So these poor guys are absolutely devastated, not only with their blueberry crops, but we met at you know where their houses are. They can't even get into their houses for all the damage from the water. All the, the lower half of their houses have been ripped out, the drywall, the plumbing, all that stuff to try and get renovated. And where do things stand then? I mean, there's so many issues with that. A, are there even plants to replace them if they had the funding or were given whatever disaster assistance they had? Are there plants that could even be purchased and brought in to, to replace them and the timing of doing the planting? But uh, that, in addition to the, the fixing of the homes, what, what do they do as far as wait, I suppose, to make the application? But are they also dealing, I would imagine, with private insurance and having to deal with that as well? Uh, exactly. And so one of the questions we asked yesterday that we want the government to come forward and assure that these blueberry growers, if they decide to start removing all of their plants, take them out of the ground, obviously compost them or burn them or whatever they're going to do, they need to know in advance if they replant the blueberry crops. And by the way, there are blueberry plants available from other parts of British Columbia that didn't get flooded. So I think there's enough blueberry plants to replace them, but they need to know if the government is willing to step up and pay for the replant program of these blueberry plants. And by the way, Jill, I I meant to mention at the beginning, I was one of the first ones to actually get out of the legislature, get back to Delta, and I did two helicopter tours of the flooding within two days after the flooding took place. And it was unbelievable to look down from a helicopter and literally just see barn roofs and, and the roofs of houses, and that was it.
Yeah, I mean, the devastation, you're right, seeing it and act, I mean, hearing about it is one thing, but then actually seeing what's happened there is is quite shocking. Uh, I did want to ask you, though, what are you hearing from the farmers in, yes, they want recovery package money from the government and assurances from the government, but again, there must be farmers as well that are dealing with private insurance companies. Well, there are. I mean, as a farmer myself, Jill, I mean, it's pretty expensive every year to take out insurance on all your buildings and whatnot. But when you're in a floodplain like uh, Sumas Prairie, which used to be a lake, the insurance companies won't touch you with a 10-foot pole because they, you know, quite frankly, they say you're in an extremely low-lying area that could be susceptible to dikes breaking and flooding. So a lot of them are uh, out of luck as far as private insurance goes. And, you you know, we talk... You know, sorry to interrupt, but we talk about Sumas Prairie and the terrible flooding there and the devastation to uh, berry farmers and to dairy farmers and hog farmers and the list goes on and on. But we cannot forget about the devastation up in, in Merritt to all the ranchers and, and, and rivers that flooded and took out part of their ranches and, and Princeton as well. So, Jill, I'm actually heading up to Merritt to meet with ranchers. Uh, and I, I'm, I'm in opposition, but I'm, I'm out there meeting with ranchers uh, this coming weekend in Merritt to, to, to listen to their plight. I know you've also penned a letter to Lana Popham, the Minister of Agriculture. If there was one thing, or what would the first thing be then, as far as from what you're hearing from people who are looking for help, what would be the first thing they would like to see? All the uh, information, the emails, the phone calls that I'm dealing with and personal meetings with farmers throughout this province have been devastated by the flooding is let's get on with it. We can't wait another 30 days or 60 days to find out if there's, uh, you know, agri-recovery money to help us get back on our feet, to get back to growing food and producing the food that people in B.C. are eating. Uh, It's such an important part of our province. So basically they need to... First of all, one thing I find is you need to lessen the bureaucratic red tape to be able to apply to get these funds because they don't just hand them to you. You have to, you know, fill out the applications and all that. And like I said, they're even making it hard saying, well, if you're a corporation or a limited company, you're not eligible. And if you have over a million dollars a year in sales, uh, you're also not eligible. Well, dairy farms all over the province have over a million dollars in sales. So they're, they're out of luck if you're a dairy farmer that got flooded. And don't forget, that's not a million dollars in profit. There's probably $999,000 in expenses to run a dairy farm, but uh, your, your milk sales may be over a million dollars. All right. Well, we are going to continue uh, seeing uh, what happens next and keeping tabs on when the recovery money is made available. Ian Payton, we'll leave it there for today, but thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. Anytime, Jill. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. That is Ian Payton. He is the MLA for Delta South, also the opposition critic for agriculture and food. We are going to take a short break. When we come back, it might sound odd to head to a pool where there is no water in the pool and to do so just to say goodbye. But that is exactly what's happening at the Canada Games Pool. We'll get more details on that when we return. Well, you might have heard about this talked about on the Jazz Joe Hall show, renting your neighbor's car. Vancouver Council looking at this, the idea of a peer-to-peer car share. And joining us to talk more about this is the Vice President, the Head of Canada at Turo, which is exactly that, a peer-to-peer car share. And Cedric Matthew is joining us on the line. Thanks so much for being with us. 
Hi, Jill. Thanks for having me. Uh, for people that aren't familiar with how this works, can you talk a bit, what is Turo and how does it work as far as people sharing their own private vehicles? Sure. Uh, Turo is uh, Canada's largest car sharing marketplace. Uh, really, our mission is to put Canada's 23 million cars to better use. Uh, we're operating across Canada, from Nova Scotia to Quebec to Alberta to British Columbia, where we launched in, uh, in 2020. And really, it's a platform that lets individual car owners uh, safely share their own cars with others in exchange for a fee. Uh, so it's a pretty simple concept. Uh, it's a pretty new concept, actually. Uh, it's really a platform where people who need quick, easy, affordable access to a car can book that car, uh, you know, where they want it, anywhere, uh, anytime from this community of, of trusted hosts. And is it an app or how do people find out that there are others in their neighborhood or nearby that are part of sharing or part of part of this peer to peer car sharing? Yeah, so uh, the uh, the app store is available, of course, on your phone. Uh, you can download it on the app store or on the Google Play Store. There's also a website that you can access online uh, on Turo.com. Uh, and really from that website, we'll be able to either browse the amazing selection of cars that we have uh, and book the car you want for the occasion you want, uh, or you're going to be able to list your own car. Uh, you know, select your price, your availability, uh, and then, uh, you know, your car is going to be available for others to book. Uh, so this has been launched in BC, as you said, June 2020. I think people will remember all of the time and the back and forth it took to get other companies up and running here, uh, be it Lyft, Uber, uh, even Evo. Uh, how was it as far as getting this up and running? Yeah, as you can imagine, it was a, a lengthy process, and uh, it's uh, you know it's a new model of, of car sharing, uh, and something that, uh, of course, from an insurance standpoint, took a, a bit of time for uh, the, the province and ACBC to figure out uh, you know how a, a successful model uh, you know uh, could be implemented in BC, um, and really the, the breakthrough for us was in. Uh, early 2020 when ICBC created this blanket insurance product uh, specifically for peer-to-peer car sharing, um, you know, creating a basic coverage uh, that we then supplement with optional coverage to really offer uh, best-in-class coverage for all of our uh, users using the platform. Um, and so now if you list your car on a platform like Turo, uh, you know, you're going to be able to, as a owner and as a, as a car owner and a host on Turo, uh, your car would be covered uh, entirely for uh, physical damage, uh, and you'd be also covered uh, for third-party liability insurance up to $2 million. Uh, so it's really a safe experience uh, and something that ICBT has been uh, very supportive of uh, you know, for, for the past uh, year and a half that we've been operating. So how does that actually work then? If walk, walk us through if somebody has a car that they want to put on the site and then somebody else wants to rent it from them. How does that all work? So uh, you would uh, go on the app. Uh, you would actually uh, start listing your car, enter your make, model, year, uh, availability, select the price for your car, um, and then automatically your car would be kind of enrolled in the in the program. Uh, it would be available for others to book. Uh, and the way insurance works is that uh, you don't even have to actually let your ICBC broker know. You would just have to let them know at the next renewal. Um, and so uh, as soon as the guest uh, would you know get the keys to your car and be on the road. Uh, it's really this blanket insurance product provided by ICBC that will cover the car for the duration of the trip. So as an individual car owner, your personal policy is not being touched. Uh, and anything happening during a trip, if, you know, unfortunately there's an accident happening, uh, it's really the um, uh, tour provided ICBC coverage that would cover the car, uh, you know, for the duration of the trip. What happens if someone blasts through a red light and gets a red light ticket? 
So, you know, when that happens, it happens, uh, you know, not a lot, but when that happens, uh, really the, you know, the thorough customer support would be there to assist. Uh, usually would, uh, you know, try to uh, support the, the host in uh, transferring the liability for, uh, for, for, for the, you know, the ticket and the, the fine associated with the ticket uh, directly to the guest. Uh, and then, you know, the, the thorough support team is here, uh, you know, seven days a week to uh, assist guests and, and hosts um, on, you know, for any problems that might arise during trips. Uh, so since this launched in June of 2020 in BC, uh, do you get a sense of how popular it is or how many people have signed up for it? Yeah, we, uh, you know, we've seen Vancouver residents uh, really embrace peer-to-peer car sharing faster and more enthusiastically than any other city in Canada. Uh, it's been really amazing to see the uh, interest that uh, you know, Vancouver residents and BC residents have had for, for Truro. Um, you know, to give you a few numbers, we've seen in the past 12 months uh, about 500 hosts uh, join the platform and, and list their cars uh, on the platform for the, in the greater Vancouver area only, uh, and more than 8,000 guests uh, booking a trip on, on the tour platform. Um, so we're very encouraged by these uh, early numbers, and uh, we're kind of excited uh, by just the level of interest that uh, Pittsburgh Cross-Sharing is having in the, in the city and, and the, the province in general. Uh, so you mentioned the insurance and how that's covered, and it doesn't affect the car owner's policy, their personal policy. How do they work out the prices, or is it up to the car owner what they want to charge as far as sharing their car, renting their car out to another resident? Yes, as an owner on Turo, as a host on Turo, you uh, are really in charge of your own pricing and in control of your pricing. Uh, so you would be able to select the price you want for your car. That being said, Turo is here to support you and help you set the right price for your car. So uh, we can uh, give you advice and indications on what we think is the right price for your car in your market. Uh, but also you can let Turo be in control of your price uh, if you want to. And in that case, uh, we uh, really try to maximize your utilization rate uh, and, and uh, your earnings uh, to make sure that uh, you make the most out of your car. And do you find people generally do this for short trips or is this somebody might want to take a, a drive to, say, Alberta and are borrowing or renting someone's car to do a longer trip like that? So that's really interesting. It's really a mix of both. Uh, we see uh, some uh, kind of intra-city uh, usage where uh, you have residents uh, booking a car to run some errands around the city and who may not have a car and don't want to do ride-sharing or, you know, use other car-sharing services and just, you know, book a car for the day. But at the same time, you also have, uh, you know, people who want to get out of the city and, you know, maybe go to the mountains for a few days. Um, and in that case, the, the trips tend to be longer. We also see an interesting, um, you know, uh, proportion of people uh, using throw when they fly to Vancouver. Uh, and so for, for these cases, of course, the durations tend to be uh, longer. And does there any, is there any kind of rating system in that you could rate, oh, this person treated my car very well, left it very clean, was great, or the other way around in that you would have a star rating or people would know what your background was like before they decide whether or not they were going to share their car with you? Yes, the, the rating system is an important part of the tour experience, uh, as it is for many uh, you know, other kind of apps and showing economy companies out there. Uh, and so... Yes, every car on the platform and every host on the platform would actually have uh, a number of reviews from past trips, um, and uh, guests are also rated by hosts at the end of every trip.
Uh, so Vancouver City Council is looking at this or exploring how to support companies like yours, things like, I suppose, allowing more parking spots for cars that are part of these peer-to-peer programs. What are you hoping for? What would you like to see as far as the council or, or do you need anything from the council being involved in this at this point? Well, I think this uh, motion that uh, is being discussed is really about kind of opening that conversation uh, and asking city staff to look at the city policy and regulatory frameworks to ensure that residents can fully take advantage of, of peer-to-peer car sharing. Uh, so, uh, you know, we're not here to dictate any, uh, you know, policies or, uh, or regulatory changes that, that we like to see, but we're really here to support the city in kind of achieving their goals. And, of course, there are a number of ways that we think uh, you know, the, the city could be facilitating access to peer-to-peer. Uh, you mentioned parking. That's one thing. Uh, you know, we uh, would love to discuss how we can help, uh, you know, creating opportunities for uh, low-carbon emi- you know, emission uh, vehicles to better park in the city or to boosting adoption of electric cars in the city, uh, where we think, uh, you know, a platform like Toro has a role to play. Uh, so there are a number of things that uh, we are really excited to discuss with the city and, and, and this motion uh, is really about kind of opening a conversation and, and creating a uh, kind of a foundation uh, for Peter uh, Bicostrain to really flourish in the city. Because as it stands now, is there anything stopping people from taking part in this in the city of Vancouver or anywhere in BC? Uh, no, no, there's nothing really stopping people to uh, to use it. Uh, but of course, you know, when you think about the existing policy uh, framework for the city, uh, there are some uh, you know incentives for people to maybe use some other types of, of car sharing uh, services. Uh, you know, you mentioned parking. Uh, there are uh, certain parking uh, spaces in the city that are uh, open for car sharing services, but peer-to-peer is not uh, included in that definition. So you know, that's the type of incentives uh, and, and kind of policies in place in the city that uh, we'd love for the city to, to consider and, uh, and kind of broaden their perspective on car sharing uh, to include peer-to-peer car sharing as well. All right. Well, it's an interesting concept and clearly people are in some cases signing on and getting better use out of their vehicles. Cedric, we'll leave it there for today, but thanks so much. Appreciate talking to you this afternoon. Thank you very much.